Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Phil Nadell. He's the founding and managing director at Forefront Venture Partners. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on the show. I, I think what you guys are doing at Forefront Venture Partners is is really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. Uh, I grew up primarily in South Florida. Okay. Um, I was, I was born in New York, but uh, moved to South Florida as a kid uh, and went to high school here and uh, and grew up here in South Florida. Very cool. And I'm back I'm back here now. That's where <laughs> I live. Very cool. So you went to university. What did you take and why? Yeah, I, I went to uh, – there was only one school I wanted to go to. I only applied to one college. Okay. Uh, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, okay. my why alma mater. Uh, because it uh, it was it is and was the premier business school in the country. Gotcha. Um, and uh, that I knew that's where I wanted to go, and I knew I wanted to go into business. So I figured, you know, if I want to go into business, I should probably try to go to the best business school uh, I can get into. And uh, so fortunately, um, I did get in. I don't okay. think I would today, but I did then. Why do you say and, that? Because they've gotten much, much tougher. Okay. And uh, but but I did get in and had a great experience uh, there in Philadelphia, um, and uh, uh, afterwards um, moved back to uh, to South Florida, as I said, where it's nice and warm. <laughs> but uh, had a great experience. I studied uh, finance okay. and I studied entrepreneurial management. Interesting. Okay, so. You get out of school, you move back to Florida, walk me through your career, maybe some career highlights along the way, up until kind of what you're doing now with uh, Forefront Venture Partners. Sure. Um, so from the moment I graduated uh, from college, um, I, I became an entrepreneur. I've, okay. I've never worked for anyone else. Nice. Um, I've, I've only uh, worked for myself, and I started a financial services company really doing uh, asset-based lending. Okay. Um, and uh, actually, that's that's one of the companies that I still have today. So nice. it's, we've been doing that a long time. Um, and uh, we do uh, asset-based lending of all kinds. I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day operations anymore, okay. but um, but I do still own it. Um, I also got involved in, in the publishing space early on. Okay. And, and that company um, sort of morphed over time. We were doing a lot of publishing of, of business-related newsletters and morphed into direct marketing of not just information products, but physical, tangible goods. Uh, and that grew very quickly. This was uh, sort of the early 90s. Okay. And it grew, you know, pre-internet. Sure. It grew very quickly and had a really nice exit. Nice. Um, and uh, started a couple other financial services companies, including a, a factoring company, commercial factoring company, which I also uh, sold for um, a reasonable amount. And um, uh, and then I've gone on to, to start other companies as well um, in the publishing space, online marketing, 
loyalty and incentive rewards based online. And um, uh, some of them I've exited. Some have been you know, modest successes, and some we closed early. Gotcha. Uh, so it run, runs the gamut. But after m- my first big exit, what what I found was that family and friends who were interested in starting businesses were approaching me not just for advice, but for uh, an investment. They, okay. they, uh, they wanted me to invest in the company. And so I did some of that. Uh, early on, I invested in uh, companies started by family members, by friends, by people I, you know, I, I knew. Interesting. And uh, it was um, it was a learning experience, right? And sure. so there are definitely pros and cons to investing in um, uh, businesses owned by family members. Yeah, or I can friends. imagine. Yeah, it can lead to problems. Fortunately, um, you know, everything worked out fine and none of them led to any kind of big problems. But I had I had some successes and some failures, but all along the way I was learning a lot and um, about investing in other people's companies and, and not being an active participant in in the day-to-day operations of a company, but, but merely being an advisor and, and an investor. And you know, I sort of like the idea of leveraging other people's um, intelligence, their resourcefulness, their initiative, their ambition. And I felt like instead of starting, you know, just starting more businesses myself, where I can only do so much, sure. if I invest in and advise other people, I'm, I'm really leveraging off of, of their talents. And um, so I'd started to uh, invest in startups in in early stage companies um, more as a full time endeavor, gotcha. um, and and then really became my full time job. Um, and so you know I've invested now in in more than a hundred companies, wow. and in in a variety of, of of industries. And we can talk further about that. But yeah, sure. but that's sort of how I got from you know that that that's sort of the general path from post college you know graduating from college starting businesses exiting businesses and getting the idea that hey it might might be fun to invest in other people's businesses as well sure so how did forefront venture partners come to be and what exactly do you guys invest in uh so forefront venture partners is one of the largest and most active syndicates on AngelList. Okay. What does that so mean AngelList, for people that don't know? Yeah. Yeah. Let me explain that. Sure. So AngelList is an online platform that allows individual angel investors to invest in startups. And they make it really simple. They do all the heavy lifting okay. and it, they make it easy for angel investors to invest as little as, you know, a thousand, two thousand dollars in a company. Um, and, and so that, that online platform Angelus, has become very, very popular. Well, about five or six years ago, they launched a feature on the platform called syndicates. Okay. And the idea was that they would take some notable investors who would sort of be a lead investor in a startup and they would allow other, um, angel investors to invest alongside with them. And so I became one of those lead investors. And so what we committed to at that time was every company that I invest in from, from then on, I would share with our syndicate group. Got so you. 
folks who join our syndicate who are, who want to invest small amounts get they get the benefits of having having us source deals, do the due diligence, negotiate terms, do all the legal work, and then continue to advise and follow the companies. And they get to invest alongside us at the same terms that we invest in. Interesting. So, yeah, so instead of trying to find deals themselves and negotiate deals with these companies, when they only want to invest maybe five or $10,000 in each company, it makes much more sense for them to join a group right. who want to invest. And so that way we have more leverage as a group as opposed to just an individual investor approaching a, a startup. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. And it seems to me, I've had a few firms that do investment over the years on the show. It seems like you guys are one of the very few that are actually doing that, right? I, I know there's others, but it seems almost like a bit of a competitive advantage for you guys to actually do it that way. Is that fair to say? Well, I think that the competitive advantage that we have comes down to the fact that we do this exclusively. Gotcha. So a lot of a lot of the syndicate leads on AngelList are are like, for instance, uh, a venture capital fund who may occasionally syndicate one of their deals uh, via their AngelList syndicate, or it could be uh, this is also common um, an entrepreneur who's done well and has a nice network and, and, and wants to invest with some of his peers and associates going forward. So they'll put together a small uh, syndicate and invest in deals once in a while. We, we view it differently. This is our exclusive business. We're um, full-time you know, devoted to unearthing, sourcing great deals, great companies to invest in, and, and making them available to our syndicate uh, investors. And then beyond that, we're absolutely committed to providing uh, frequent, regular communications from the companies. And this, I think, is a big differentiator for us. And we hear this all the time from our, our syndicate investors. And that is other, other companies they invest in that aren't through our, our forefront syndicate they very rarely hear from the companies. They don't get oh, regular updates. Sure. They don't get reports. They don't hear from the companies, and and they hate it. They they one of the main reasons why uh, individual angel investors invest in companies is that they want to stay up to date on the company and they sure. want to help wherever they can. If there's an opportunity for them to assist the company and help them grow, they want to do that. And part of the, the, the benefit of a company keeping its investors updated is that they get to leverage all the um, experience and knowledge and connections of their, uh, of their investors. And um, so that's a real benefit. And so our companies that we invest in commit to us in writing in advance to provide regular updates to our investors. And that's a huge differentiator for us because um, very, very few other syndicates are committed to that, none that I know of. Interesting. Yeah, that's, yeah, in, in my experience, I, I would agree that with that as well, right? That, yeah, that's interesting. So what types of companies or verticals do you guys like to invest in or does it really matter? So one of our investment uh, theses is that we want to help 
our syndicate members build a diversified portfolio, gotcha. as well as building a diversified portfolio for ourselves. Sure. So we're we're intentionally not um, focused on any one industry or sector. We try to remain industry agnostic. Okay. But there there are a few sort of caveats to that, and um, I would say. Number one is that we focus on post-revenue companies only. Okay. So we only invest in companies that are already generating at least some revenue. It doesn't have to be significant. Okay. But we want, we want that early indication of product market fit. We want that early indication that, that someone, some third party, is willing to write a check for the product or service being sold. Gotcha. Um, so that's an important um, uh threshold for us. And the other thing is that we don't invest in really capital intensive businesses. So if we know that a company is, you know, like a biotech company that's going to need hundreds of millions of of dollars for research and development, that's something we're not going to invest in. That's not the kind of journey that we're looking for. Um, Same thing for companies that are focused on building out via brick and mortar. If they want to build, you know, brick and mortar stores or restaurants, that can be capital intensive and something we're likely to shy away from. Gotcha. So we we do invest in, in B2C companies and B2B companies. We invest in har- some hardware companies. We do a lot of SaaS companies. So a real variety. Again, it's about building a diversified portfolio. But I, I did mention a couple of areas that we kind of shy away from. Sure. So I'm curious to get your thoughts because I've heard from people that sometimes they like being able to invest in a handful of different spaces, like you just mentioned, or they they don't like investing in companies that they haven't been in that industry. So why do you guys broadly invest and why do you think that makes a lot of sense? Because some people shy away from those industries that they've never worked in before. You know, that's a, that's a really insightful question, um, and I appreciate you asking it, because there are t- two schools of thought on that for yeah. angel investors, right? One is invest in what you know, right? So mm-hmm. if, you, if you started a, an engineering company and you sold it and you did well and you want to invest, stick with, you know, businesses that are in engineering or something similar to what you were doing. And, and there's a lot of sense to that. But there's also the diversified portfolio approach, and and that's you know the approach that we take, which is to say that you know a sector can have a lot of ups and downs and can be uh, affected to a greater degree than a broad diversified portfolio. Sure. So you can really you know, you can really get hit in terms of valuations over time in in a narrow sector plus. There, are, there just aren't that many opportunities to source, it, depending on the niche, right. depending on the, the, the industry. There may not be enough deals, so you end up with a concentration of your investment in just a handful of companies, and I don't think that's smart. If you look at, if you look at the historical venture capital um, returns, they're built off of a, a large number of investments. So okay. you need to you need to have a large number. When I say large, I mean generally considered to be greater than twenty. Okay. But but even greater than ten investments is still 
you know, you're, you're, you're getting there. But if you're concentrated, if your investments are concentrated in three, four, five companies, I think, you know, anytime one of them goes out of business, that, that really is going to affect your overall portfolio returns. So knowing that, you know, 70% or so of startups that we, that, that come, that investors invest in will eventually go out of business. You need to make sure you have enough companies in your portfolio so that you can you can have some of those winners. Sure. And um, so so back to your question. So we take the the view that a portfolio approach across industries makes the most sense because it gives us opportunities to sort of um, source many more deals, quality deals, and not be focused just on one industry. And to leverage opportunities in other industries and and take advantage of industries that may be new and growing. Sure. If you just end up relying on uh, the industry or the area that you're comfortable with, then you really aren't taking advantage of, of new and upcoming technologies that are growing quickly. And I think that that can be... Um, that can be a mistake, and that can that can hurt your overall portfolio returns. So while I'm not saying that that one approach is right and one is wrong, we take the approach that it's better to be diversified across industries, across a lot of different uh, companies, than it is to be focused just on one niche. Sure. Well, and I also think too, sometimes if you're in one industry, you just automatically work around the red tape where if you come at it and you've never worked in that industry before, you can literally be, well, that doesn't really make sense. Why don't we just do it like this? And it could be something really simple sometimes. And that person or that founder that you invested in, like, I never thought of it like that because of this, this, and this. And you're just like, well, in other industries that we've invested in, you would just do it like that, right? Is that fair to say? Or have you experienced that? Yeah, I think having those outside perspectives you know, perspectives from outside that, that little insular industry um, can be very, very helpful, right? So mm -hmm. you're right. I mean, as, as more generalists, we get to apply successful techniques from lots of different yeah. businesses to our portfolio companies. And, and there are also, I have to say, there are also great um, opportunities for synergies between our portfolio companies. Yeah, so, interesting. When you focus on one industry, one thing is you have to be careful of investing in um, in, in competitors in conflicts of interest, and we try to avoid that. So, it, you know, when you're investing just in one industry, you may invest in one company that does something, and then you have to avoid, or you'd want to avoid their competitors. So that further restricts your ability to deploy funds. But um, but we invest across industries, and so we don't really have, have that problem. But yes, we take techniques that we see portfolio companies um, using successfully, and we'll share them with uh, other portfolio companies. And that works very, very well. And, and also, as I said, there are great opportunities for, for these synergies to for companies to, to work together in our, within our portfolio. And we've done a lot of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then right you have just people that invested even a thousand dollars could give some sort of really good perspective right so that's that's quite interesting how how you got your angle on it yeah i'm glad you brought that up because we see that time and time again that 
our portfolio companies, when they issue their, their regular updates, yeah. they'll, they'll usually include some information about like requests for help. So can anyone introduce me to this potential client? Can anyone um, recommend some uh, great product developers or engineers or a great salesperson? Whatever it may be, our syndicate members inevitably will have uh, suggestions for help. They'll have um, they'll reach out to the CEO of the company and say, "Yeah, I can help. Here's someone I want you to connect with, or here's an idea that we employed in my previous company that might work for you. Here's a recommendation of a you know to outsource to this company." They get all kinds of input. It's really a, a great model. And plus, from you know an investor standpoint. All of our syndicate members go into one entity, so they end up being only one entity on the on the company's cap table. So even though they have like the collective wisdom and and connections of you know eighty or ninety or hundred people, it's only one entity on their cap table, which a lot of companies um, uh, are worried about. They don't want to you know get have so many individual investors. Inter yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That that's quite interesting. So when people are looking to pitch you guys for investment, are there certain things you guys look for and are kind of a, oh man, that's a total no-no? Like walk me us through that, how you guys decide who to invest in and who not to invest in. Sure. Well, like most early stage investors, you know, the the first thing is the people, right? Mm -hmm. We want to we want we want to be very, very excited about the founding team. Okay. Uh and and they they have to really show us that, that they have the potential to grow this company. They have the passion for whatever product or service they're in, um, and and that they they know what they're doing. They have a clear vision for getting the company from where they are today to an enterprise scale company. Okay. It's not always going to happen, but they've got to have a clear vision, and that vision has to resonate with us. Um, so th that's number one. I mean. The company has to have, uh, or the product has to have, a large enough addressable market. Okay. So we we can't invest in in very uh, small addressable markets because it's just not going to the company's not going to turn into a, a big company. Even if they get to 100% penetration in a certain market, if the market is very very small, the company's not going to be an enterprise scale company. So that that doesn't work for us. It needs to have scale potential. Um, and so, so we look, certainly look for that. Um, in terms of, uh, of, of the, you know, the, the, st the stage that the company's at, I mentioned that we don't invest in pre-revenue right. companies or companies that haven't really shipped a product yet. And so, so that's important. Again, we want to see some indication of product market fit that, that, that people are willing to pay for the, the product or service that they're, uh, that they've come up with. Um, so I think that's that's important. Um, we we look for founders who understand the market they're in. They understand uh, the competitors, and they have a true differentiator, um, something that makes their product unique and helps them to stand out from the competition. Um, and that may not be a forever differentiator, but it, it's got to be something that get, that can get them in the door and differentiate from from all the other companies out there. Um, so that's I think that's uh, another important point. There are lots of things that we look for, right? I mean, this sure. I'm just sort of 
scratching the surface, but uh, but but that gives you a, a start. It's got to be something that's that's defensible or proprietary. Sure. That's that's yeah. And you guys have a full thesis on a bunch of things that you guys look for on your website as well, and people can go check that out at uh, forefrontvp.com slash thesis. So, Thanks for listening to Building the Future. This show is heard by more than a million people monthly in over 15 markets worldwide, including Silicon Valley. Kevin Horick's guests are leading business owners, successful entrepreneurs, and merchandisers worldwide. Now, your brand has an opportunity to tap into this dedicated and active group of business people who are looking for places to invest and the right opportunities to support. Find out how you can get involved at buildingthefutureshow.com. I'm I'm curious, though, is there anything that you see all the time that you wish you didn't see when people are pitching to you guys? I would. I think that um, it, it always surprises me. Well, a couple things always surprise me about uh, pitches. One is that some founders uh, think it's a good idea not to be transparent and not to be candid, uh, and they, they they're very coy. And I think that if you're trying to, um, if you're asking someone to invest their their money in the company. Uh, you better lay your cards on the table Got and you. tell them tell them everything the good the bad the ugly um and it every company has weaknesses every company has shortcomings uh these are early stage companies no one has every answer or you know has has everything covered that's expected but share with us your your thoughts on those areas of weakness and areas that need improvement well because you and, might be able to help right for sure, you could say, "Oh, yeah, that's not really an issue at all." It might be to me, but if if you're willing to invest in my company, whatever that is, and I have this weakness, you could be like, "You know, we can solve that, or we've solved that same problem, right?" So, but if I didn't tell you, you would never know, or potentially that's, never know. That's for sure. But but even if even if the company has uh, an area of weakness, if they if they understand it and have a plan for um, for making it into a, turning it into a strength, then that's great. So tell us that, you know, you're, you're weak on, on product engineering, but here's our plan for getting over that hump. Here's our plan for hiring and bringing on the right talent or whatever the case may be. Our, our churn rate is too high right now. Uh, Uh, but here's our plan for, reducing churn rate over the next 6 to 12 months and here's how we're doing in in getting there. So if you have if you have a problem, tell me about it and if you have a potential solution in mind, share that as well. But too many companies try to hide information, try to hide areas that they're concerned about and just try to to sugarcoat uh everything. So I think that that that's a turnoff for us. Um and and the other thing that always sort of surprises me is we'll have introductory calls with companies sometimes, okay. and I can't I can't tell you how often uh, the the founders will not follow up with the information after the call that we've requested. So typically oh. during a wow. during a call, if we're interested in the company, we'll usually request some further information after the call. Makes sense. And so many founders just drop the ball and don't follow up. 
Wow. Uh, they, they won't send us the information, or they, you know, they'll forget, or whatever it may be. And it just, uh, I mean, to me, that's a real red flag because if they're not going to follow up with potential investors, how yeah. are they going to be with potential customers? Interesting. And you know, that that's a signal for me uh, that we better take a really uh, a closer look here because it, um, you know, it, that that concerns me. So, um, so those are some of the things that I that I'm always uh, surprised about with with pitches. And then you know you get some people who say they want you to sign a non-disclosure agreement and they want you to you know jump through hoops before you share information. We have incredible deal flow, right? We see sure. lots and lots of deals. We don't we don't we're not wanting for for deals and, and, and venture capitalists typically do not sign non-disclosure agreements and, and aren't going to jump through hoops to, to get information about a company. Make it easy. A lot of companies set up data rooms where you can just go online and view all the all the data and that's super easy and, and a, a pleasure to deal with. Interesting. Well and and tell me your thoughts on this, because I think ideas are use are, are worthless. It's the execution that's worth something. Is that fair to say or is that do you agree with that? I think it's the combination, right? So yeah, I I agree with you okay. that I think I think execution is more important. Okay. Um ideas I agree. Ideas without execution are worthless, right? Mm-hmm. But but if you just have execution and you don't have a good product, a differentiated product, then you're sort of spinning your wheels. Right. You can, you know, you can go out and sell all day long. You could be the best salesperson in the world, but if you're selling a product that that isn't special or different or doesn't solve a problem for a company or an individual, then you're not going to get anywhere. Right. Really. So you need. I think companies need both. Okay. Um, you need to have a good product and and um, uh, so a good idea or product, and then you need to execute. You need to engineer, uh, you need to sell, and you need to follow up. You need to retain your customers. All of those things. Yeah. Okay. So I think I know the answer to the next question, but there there seems to be a trend in the investment community that they almost don't care what the product is. They're just willing to invest in somebody and they'll fig- and let them kind of figure it out. It sounds like you guys want at least a product idea and somebody that you, you really believe in. Is that fair to say? Yes, but uh, we fully understand that most successful companies have pivoted right. or at least iterated during their early life cycle. Got you. So we we don't fool ourselves in believing that the initial product that we're seeing today is necessarily going to be the ultimate product when the company exits, you gotcha. know, 10 years down the road. So Well, it shouldn't be, right? Yeah. Well, hopefully not. Hopefully they're growing and improving the product, but sometimes it's a dramatic pivot right. where they get into something completely different. And I'd rather be investing in a really smart, scrappy, resourceful founding team who can make that kind of pivot gotcha. and realize that the market is speaking to them and that their current product isn't filling a need or solving a problem and that they need to pivot. But if, they lear- if they're learning from those early errors and pivoting into something that is solving a problem that's in demand by customers, that that's smart. And, the, and a smart founding team will make that kind of pivot. But 
you, you can have the, the greatest product. If you don't have a great founding team, then a competitor comes along and the founding team doesn't know how to react and they don't, they don't adjust and iterate and grow the product and improve it over time. And then it's, it's going, it's, it's going to fade out. It's not going to be a long-term success. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the, the, just the word pivot has such a negative connotation to it. And I think basically in, in my opinion, you can tell me your thoughts is basically every company that's, stayed around for generations is constantly pivoting. Maybe not like huge all the time, but even take Amazon or Apple or they pivot all the time. Not necessarily bad. I I think we wouldn't have some of the things that we have today if these companies didn't do that. Is that, do you agree with that? Or or am I off? I do. No, I think they have to they evolve or die, right? You mm-hmm. have to evolve, continue to evolve over time, or the company dies. You can't yeah. be stagnant. You have to com- you have to constantly innovate. And as you said, it can be in in small ways. It could be iterations. It doesn't have to be a major pivot. But you must continue to innovate and stay ahead of the, of the competition, but also stay in front of the of your customers with with new and exciting features that they want and need. And so if you keep providing customers with solutions to their problems and with innovative ways to um, to make their lives easier or make their companies more profitable or save them time, then you're going to uh, you're going to be successful. But that's an ongoing process. It's not a one and done kind of thing. Sure. So I'm curious to know, do you guys only invest in certain geographic regions or how does that kind of work for you guys? We invest, uh, we invest primarily in the U.S., uh, okay. but we also invest in Canada, okay. Israel, and a little bit of we- parts of Western Europe. Okay. But, uh, but to be fair, you know, 95% plus of our portfolio is in the U.S. Okay. And, and are, in terms of geographic preferences uh, within the U.S., we don't have any. Okay. Uh, we are, ge- you know, geographically agnostic within the U.S. Um, and it's interesting to note that you know we are valuations differ significantly across the country. Interesting. And, and we are we are really uh, focused on getting the right valuation when we invest. And so, for that reason, while we do have uh, a number of Silicon Valley uh, located companies in our portfolio, we don't have as many as as some other early stage investors because okay. the valuations for those companies are typically much higher than than the valuation would be if the company were located in the Midwest or or somewhere else. So um, so we really invest all over. Um, the country. And, and there are great companies coming out of all different areas. Sure. There are certainly more challenges in certain areas uh, for for companies that are just starting out in terms of recruiting talent uh, and whatnot. But um, we take that into into account and also, again, look at, uh, at valuation. So we invest all over the, the U.S. Got you. So I'm curious, in your experience with all the companies that you guys have invested in, I, I, there, there seems to be a bit of a trend to hire more kind of remote people and maybe not make people move to 
Silicon Valley or other kind of hotbed startup parts of, of the country. Do you find that or is that just kind of, you know, stuff that you've read in the media? Because it seems like there's a ton of people that are really talented, like you mentioned, maybe in the Midwest or, or somewhere that's not necessarily like a Silicon Valley, but, you know, and they don't want to move or can't move, but, you know, these companies want that talent and they're willing to say, you know what, I don't care where you work, right? Have you experienced that or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that that is one of the greatest things about our connected world that we live in today. Um, for startups, it means that they're they're not limited to the talent pool that's yeah. in their backyard, right? They they can outsource talent from all over the world, literally, okay. sure. and they can get great developers in India, and they yeah. can get you know great. Uh, product people in you know in Boston, and they can get people from from they can get people from all over the world, and they don't have to uh, requ- they don't require them to to move physically. They they can work part time. They uh, they can specialize in whatever area it is that they do. And sometimes you know the startups not only will expand their um, the, the, their um, you know, the number of people available to them from just their backyard to the whole world, but sure. also they'll get economies of scale because they'll get uh, lower uh, cost talent from other areas. So Silicon Valley companies are probably the easiest example. I mean, talent in Silicon Valley area is so expensive that a lot of the companies will outsource it um, to other parts of the U.S. or overseas and save a lot of money while also getting access to great talent. Sure. So it's not only difficult to hire in Silicon Valley, it's extremely competitive and the, and the uh, salaries are high. So by looking outside your backyard, you really get to, um, to outsource to some great talent, but also to save money in some cases. Sure. So I'm, I'm assuming the first few calls, unless somebody's kind of within you know, a few hours of your guys's office, you do the first um, meetings with a potential investment uh, over the phone or, or video calling. But at some point, do they have to come down and meet you guys in person or will you fly to them or or how does that kind of work? Yeah, it's not, uh, we don't require that companies uh, meet, come to us in person. And okay. Sometimes we'll go to them, sometimes we'll meet uh, in a common place. If we both happen to be in New York or gotcha. in San Francisco, we'll meet there, whatever that uh, that may be. But but we'll, we will invest in companies without ever meeting the founders in person. We'll do okay. video conferencing, we'll do phone calls, and um, and we do a lot of due diligence. We, okay. we do a lot of due diligence. So we do, you know, reference checks on the founders, we do customer reference checks, um, and we speak to other investors, and, and we so we, we check them out thoroughly, even if uh, it's a case where we don't meet them in person. Got you. So the due diligence process is probably different depending on how much money and, and what type of business, but is there a typical kind of period? Is it weeks? Is it a few months? How long does it typically take? Or maybe a range that's roughly how long it takes with you guys? Sure. The the amount of time it takes for our due diligence is is somewhat dependent on the the company okay. and how prepared they are, mm, how fair. how how forthcoming they are with their information. So, as I mentioned earlier, if the company has like a data room set up online 
where they have all of the documents that investors typically want to see, then our due diligence might be as as little as a couple weeks, sure. you know, or, or even shorter if if need be. But if they aren't prepared for the due diligence process, and we have to request documents, and then they need time to prepare them right. uh, or gather the information, then it can be much uh, a much longer process. It can take, you know, uh, who knows how long. It depends on how long they take to get back to us. But our, our um, time, the time that we require to review the documents that are necessary, can can be as little as a week or two. I mean, okay. you know, we can if we're focused on a deal and really trying to get get it done before a certain deadline, and you know, we'll get we'll get customer calls done, reference checks done. We'll we'll check out, we'll do all the due diligence, we'll we'll do everything, um, you know, with a lot of with a lot of focus. And also, I have to say that part of it uh, of the timeline required is dependent on other investors that are in the deal and uh, you know, because sometimes we can leverage off of other investors due diligence if, if they've, uh, if they've done a professional job with it, if they're, especially we're talking about institutional VC funds, I'm not talking about angel investors, but if there's a lead investor who's an institutional uh, venture capital fund, um, we can often uh, leverage off of their, some of their due diligence as well. Makes total sense. So, I'm curious then, is there any trends or industries that kind of excite you as an investor that maybe you'd even like to invest, you know, more into, or it doesn't really matter? You know, we, we try to remain very open-minded and, and open to a lot of different opportunities. So there, there are certainly you know, industries that are growing faster than others and are more right. exciting. And there are technologies that are being deployed across industries. Yeah, so like artificial intelligence or machine learning as a component of artificial intelligence is, is an example where a lot of companies are finding really smart uses for artificial intelligence that are, are helping them to, um, to become more efficient, to become differentiated, to scale faster, and there are a lot of opportunities there across industry, uh, across industries, for companies who are deploying some of these new technologies like artificial intelligence. Um, so I think you know the same thing is true for some of the blockchain technologies that yeah. are being applied to various industries. I think that um, you know there, again there are lots of opportunities there. We have to be very careful. To um, to avoid companies that are just trying to use buzzwords or uh, just trying to you, you know to say that they're using artificial intelligence or blockchain or whatever, but really don't have a good use case for it. There has to be a, a really smart use case for those technologies and a way that they're util, uh, utilizing it um, uh, for their advantage, and not just so they can say to investors that we're an artificial intelligence company. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you guys probably get that quite a bit, right? That the people just jump from bandwagon to bandwagon trying to say they're doing something in this space. But if you look into it a bit deeper, you're like, well, you're kind of not really, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, look, if you're if you're a manufacturer of dog food, sure. you, you probably don't need to say you're an AI focused company, sure. right? You don't yeah. need a lot of artificial intelligence <laughs> to create dog food. Yeah. So 
just you know focus on making the best product, the best dog food you can, and don't worry about the artificial intelligence. So it has to be applied to the right kinds of businesses who can really benefit from it. So we we have to keep our our radar up for that kind of thing. But um, but there are certainly a lot of exciting new technologies that will help businesses across the board to to grow and to uh, and to scale even quicker. No, it makes total sense. So I, I know you mentioned you guys invest once people start making a bit of money. It doesn't have to be a ton. But in your personal opinion, at what point in a company should people actually look for investment? Because some people say sometimes it's still a napkin idea. Some people say you need X amount of dollars. But what's your kind of opinion? Like, do they need, I know you mentioned like they need a little bit of money for you guys, but what do you think is kind of an ideal spot to raise money or does it really, really depend on kind of the industry and the person and, and where they want to take this thing? Yeah. So all investors sort of have their own uh, risk tolerance yeah. and, and, and where they want to be. I, what we have seen for us is that the, 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 the reward, the risk reward ratio is best at the stage, the early stage, once it's a company's post revenue. Okay. So in other words, you're giving up, you're paying a little bit more in terms of valuation for a company that has re a little bit of revenue versus one that's an, an idea. Right. You're paying a little bit more in terms of valuation, but the de-risking that you're doing is so significant that in our view, it's really well worth it. You get, you're reducing risk so dramatically and you're only sometimes increasing the valuation slightly. Okay. So the, that kind of um, inflection point for us is really the, the sweet spot of where we like to invest. So before a company has truly started to, to scale, they've identified some uh, scalable marketing and sales channels, right? They've done, they're experimenting. They've said, okay, we see that if we sell the product via this channel or that channel, it works and it works at a reasonable customer acquisition cost. All we need now is fuel to pour on the fire. We need capital so that we can scale out this, this customer acquisition machine that we've built. Okay. And, and that's, that's the place where we want to invest, where we're not necessarily um, at that point where they're reinventing the wheel. They've come up with a great idea. They've developed some ideas, some um, experiments around customer acquisition, and they're starting to, um, to get to a good customer acquisition cost. And now they just need more money to, to exploit those. And that's, that's really the point where we want to invest. Makes sense. I, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this uh, as well. Do you find it's better or easier for people to either found a company by themselves or have a co-founder or many co-founders? I'm, I'm always curious to get people's thoughts on that because I've, I've seen obviously both work and you know people have seen that. But what do you think is easier? Because I think I've heard from founders sometimes that if they're just a single founder, they find sometimes people don't actually tell them the truth because they're not like a co-founder, right? Where if you have a co-founder, you can kind of bounce ideas off people and they can kind of say, you know, that doesn't make any sense. What's your experience with that? So I think that, uh, let's look at the statistics. Okay. The statistics 
in, in, in early stage investing in venture capital space will tell you that uh, disproportionately companies with um, a small founding team, like two or three founders, okay. are more successful than those with either one, a single founder or a large group of founders, gotcha. like you know five or more. Okay. So two or three to us is the optimal kind of number. Gotcha. And look, I mean... Other than than you, Kevin, not everyone has is good at everything. Sure. I mean, maybe you are. I know you are, but everyone else is not. <laughs> so, like, you take you take a successful engineer, for example, mm-hmm. a really smart engineer. They may not be good at sales. You take right. a great salesman; they may not know anything about engineering or enjoy so, it, right? Or enjoy it exactly. Yeah. And and these are different types of personalities, different types of of people. And I think, you know, most good companies, successful companies, are going to have founders who are good at across a few disciplines. Sure. Um, you're going to have the technical product guy. You're going to have, you know, the person who focuses on sales and marketing. Um, as you grow, you need to add people, of course, to this. But the founders should have, you know, should cover the, the primary disciplines. And I think it's very unusual for one person to be good at enough of that to really make it work. And if in those cases, we hope that they would have a plan for um, bringing on really good talent early on, earlier than, a, than um, you know, a two or three person founding team would necessarily need to do. So I, th- I think that it can, all, it can work, you know, certainly it can work with, with, with one, with a founder or even with a group of, of five founders, but the sweet spot I think historically in this business has been like sort of the two or three um, founding team, uh, two or three member founding team. And that's, that's what we like to see also, but, but we certainly do invest in, in solo founders as well. Very cool. So we're, we're almost at the end of the show, but I do want to have you mention um, maybe do you want to highlight a couple of companies? You guys have had some exits, just even just doing some research before, uh, you and I kind of recorded. I've actually had a couple of your the guys you've invested in on the show in the past, so that's kind of cool for me, uh, selfishly. But do you maybe want to mention a few companies that you guys have invested in, in and and talk about them quickly? Um, sure. We've we're we're so uh, proud of our uh, portfolio. Um, we've invested in such great people and great companies. Um, that uh, it's a pleasure to talk about it. And we've had we've already had a bunch of exits, um, so we're we're you know really happy about that. Some of them um, came much much faster than we would have expected. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, I can I can mention a couple couple of companies. I you know I hate to um, to highlight too many because it's like uh, picking a favorite child. So <laughs> I don't. But um, for example, we invested in in a company called Grove Collaborative. Okay. Uh, Grove. Uh, makes uh, non-toxic uh, products, cleaning products, and home home products for your home. Oh, so detergents cool. and soaps and things that are completely non-toxic and safe for right. your family. And uh, when we invested uh, just a couple of years ago, we were we invested at a twelve million dollar valuation. Wow. Their last funding round was at a two hundred and fifty five million dollar valuation. Wow. So they've grown tremendously, sure. huge success. Um, we we invested in um, 
in a company called Wanderoo. Okay. Wanderoo is like the Expedia for ground transportation. Oh, interesting. A lot of people don't realize that, that more people travel on buses each year than travel on airplanes. Oh, I didn't know that. And Yeah, and there are lots of different bus lines, and they're all you know confusing, and their websites stink. And so um, it's, there's no easy way to book ground transportation, but Wanderoo has made it much easier. You can book any kind of bus trip in the U.S. And, and many, many other countries through Wanderoo. And, you know, they, they service hundreds of, of different carriers. Cool. Um, also have grown like a weed. I mean, just grown really, really quickly. Um, so th- those are a couple of, of examples. We, we just, our most recent investment was a company called Data Assembly, okay. which um, provides uh, major uh, CPG brands, uh, brand companies, and also retailers with real-time pricing data. Oh. So companies have been in the dark about what retailers are selling their products for on the shelves. Like if you're, if you're Pepsi, for example, um, who's one of their customers, if you're Pepsi, you, you don't know what uh, Kroger is selling the product for. And you don't know in each individual local store what they're selling it for. There are huge variances. Sure. And so this company provides Pepsi with real-time data across every single store of what their product's being sold for. And likewise, if you're Kroger, you don't know what Walmart is selling right. Pepsi for. And you want to know. You want to be competitive. And so now they can get that data. And this is the only company that does it. It's uh, very exciting. We're thrilled to be a part of, uh, of Data Assembly. So these are just a few examples of the types of companies that we've invested in. Our portfolio is uh, 48 companies wow. uh, so far. And, um, and you know, you, your listeners who are interested in investing can, can invest alongside of us without any obligation. In other words, they can just join the syndicate, and if they're interested in the deals, they can invest. And if they're not interested, they can pass. There's no never any obligation. That's very cool. But we're out of time. So do you want to close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys and all the stuff we talked about today? Sure. I mean, our website, as you mentioned, is ForefrontVP.com. So that's just F-O-R-E, ForefrontVP.com. Um, and they can learn more about us there. Or if they're on AngelList, they can go on Angel.co, which is AngelList's website, Angel.co. And they can search for Forefront Venture Partners there, and they can learn about us there either way. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. Thanks so much, Kevin. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.